on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedar Quist, joined on America's Talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week... We go inside the huddle with America's favorite baritone, Will Liverman, the Ryan Opera Center alum, and the Mets' first black papagena will be profiled in the February issue of Opera News. Now, that's the first time one of our interview guests got the OBS bump before the episode even aired. <laughs> but first, in Chalk Talk, BIPOC artists are challenging NIOP's application fees on the grounds of racial and socioeconomic inequality equity. That's through an open letter on middleclassartist.com. We're going to talk you through what's at stake for these singers. Plus, in the two-minute drill, we introduce a new regular feature called Red Card, Yellow Card. We recap which houses are closed or open for business. Yellow means you're playing with a warning. Red, you are out of the game. Speaking of out of the game, the Detroit Red Wings, my Red Wings team, they've played three games at home. They are one and two, including an opening day shutout at home. I think oh, that's you were so I, excited last week. I was. Buddy. I'm a fair weather fan. I've now switched my jersey to my the Swedish national team. Look at this. <laughs> What's their record like? It looks Detroit so happy. Well, we won't know until they play in the Olympics. Oliver Camacho. You look like an IKEA employee wearing that. <laughs> What's new with you, Oliver? Well, I was at the gym and I saw that there's some gymnastics happening. I don't know what level of gymnastics it was, but I was very excited. And uh, other You're sports. Just like in a gym, just someone was just doing push I was so at like, their gym. No, no, I was at just my lost gym. It, just and they have a bunch of TVs that play various uh, sports. And I happened gotcha. to be at the gym while gymnastics was being broadcast. And I felt very <laughs> seen because um, that's exactly what I like to look at while I'm exercising. He does and... have a sixth sense for gymnasts. If there are gymnasts <laughs> anywhere, Oliver knows. <laughs> Matt uh, Cummings, how's your sports life? Um, I mean, Pittsburgh's still smartin', although I did find out that my future brother-in-law recently ran into Mike Tomlin and invited him to play Frisbee golf with my entire family. <laughs> so if that happens, we might have a new guest at the wedding. Ooh. I would. First of all, A, yes, but B, a new guest on Opera Box Score. Huh, hello. True. That would be incredible. Weston, can you... Imagine a better guest than Pittsburgh Steelers coach Mike Tomlin on the show. Nick Saban, obviously. Roll Tide. You know my whole spiel. Rest in peace, Ohio State. You just couldn't make the cut. Ashley Hardgrave, how many hours of NFL playoffs did you watch on Sunday? Uh, I watched six. I watched all six hours of the NFL playoffs on Sunday. <laughs> and all I have to say is... I love you, Cleveland. I love you, Cleveland Browns. Nobody expected you to be there, but Baker Mayfield, Kareem Hunt, you are heroes. Hell of a game. Hell of a game. Also, I got to watch the Patrick Mahomes concussion, and the aftermath happened in real time. It was very odd. It didn't look like a concussion, but all of a sudden, he is full wobbly. He, the camera gets to him, and his eyes are crossed. It was terrifying, especially for someone who... Like, I, I, I'm a fan of, of his. I, I wish the sports franchise would change their name, 
but they're a really great football team. Uh, I also got to see what was probably Drew Brees' last game at the Superdome, which is like, it was kind of a sad ending to a really amazing career, but there was a nice moment between him and the other team's quarterback, which we don't have to talk about, um, but they had a nice little moment at the at the very end of the game that took New Orleans, unfortunately, out of the playoffs. But yes, I watched it all. Lots of sports happening in the past week. we got lots of opera for you on the show. This week, let's get to it. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. A recent article on middleclassartist.com highlighted not only racial inequity, but also socioeconomic inequity relating to recent auditions at the NIOP organization. Ashley Hardgrave, talk us through the letter and let's unpack the impact that it may have. I sure can. So for those of you listening at home that might not know, uh, the NIOP uh, stands for the New York International Opera Auditions. We uh, think. We think it's... St- <laughs> it's we can't sure find that in writing anywhere, this is, this but that is, is our best guess. This is a true story. I googled NIOP because I assumed it was a dumb question. I was like, I don't know what it stands for. So I, I googled, what does NIOP stand for? And it just came up and said, NIOP stands for New York International Opera auditions. I'm like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> so we It'd be Nyopa, the then. <laughs> but, uh, that, that is a minor criticism of many criticisms, criticisms we're about to have for this organization. So continue, it, Ashley. It was quite the thing. So the, the letter that was on middleclassartist.com comes from the Ladbex Artist Society and Opera, or LASSO, 1S. Uh, and I'm going to do a little bit of quick quoting from the article so that you get the gist. We're not going to read the whole thing. But the nutshell is, One prominent example of what we wish to see change is the predatory practice of organizations that charge outrageous outrageous fees, excuse me, especially during a pandemic. These practices significantly affect Afro-Latin, Latinx, Black, Indigenous, and peoples of color. We want to specifically bring attention to the NIOP competition, charging $150 to $200 to perform for panelists who are not incurring expenses for venue, lodging, or travel does not make sense because this year, sidebar, NIOP's auditions were all virtual. NIOP then charges an extra $75 for the semifinals portion of the competition. Lasso asks that NIOP stand by their transparency. Why did you charge these predatory fees for an online competition? Where is this money going? And why did you charge a second fee in the semifinals? We hope that you reflect on your business model and that you consider the ways in which your competition's application process has added barriers to those who wish only to be heard in the world of opera. If you wish to continue this conversation, please contact us. So... I bet we have feelings, Weston. Do you have feelings? (laughs) I have a feeling or two. I can dig something out of there. Uh, Well, first of all, when I when I saw this uh, open letter, I thought it did it tied in extremely well with what we were talking about last week. Uh, If you missed that episode, we were talking about you know what we're thinking of doing going forward as artists, as professionals in the opera world. Uh, what needs to change? Uh, what what things the pandemic has brought forward that we no longer that we realize now are not really acceptable, and uh, and really these audition fees are really in this category. Uh, the fact that these fees persisted even during a pandemic when there was no excuse like oh we have to book a hotel oh we have to have a, rent this room oh we have to do this 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 this. It really speaks to the fact that the vast majority of these kinds of fees are unnecessary. 
and even and uh, the, this kind of is one of those things that felt normal only because ever it was it's so prevalent and it still is. But this is one of the things we have to stand up and say, no, this is financial gatekeeping. If there is a genuine need to have some extra money paying for the competition, it should not come from artists who have been in school for years and have hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt. Um, it keeps away people of color, uh, people of, of, of different classes who don't have family money to pay for these things, to live on starvation wages. It, it, and it also perpetuates the perception of offer, opera as being an irrelevant entertainment only for the super rich. And whatever costs that do actually exist that uh, are used as excuses to charge young singers with uh, these kinds of audition fees, whatever costs that do actually exist need to be paid for by sources other than the auditionees, period, in my and opinion. You, and you bring up opera, which is... it. It's right on that opera is one of the few art forms that actually still does charge these application fees. Absolutely, sometimes. yeah. yeah. Uh, for I mean, in pre-pandemic times, you would be charged application fees without even being guaranteed a live audition, mm-hmm. uh, and that was you know even more unethical that they would take your fee, they would take your money to not listen to your pre-screening, as we saw from an earlier middle class artist <laughs> yes. blog yep. from this year. Uh, and it's just cynical. It's cashing in on the greenest and most optimistic and most hopeful members of the musical community, the people who mm. want the most for opera to survive um, for both selfish and unselfish reasons they want opera to survive. And the, these companies have decided that instead of nurturing them, they are going to just cash in. Yeah. And NIOPS, I would say, has, in, it, it has a particular reputation for being a bit of a black box. In that it's this big, it's this big gathering of all. I mean, in normal times, gathering in New York of agents from European companies, and the idea is you could get you could get a fest contract or something like that out of an audition like this, but no one really knows like how you do that or how often (laughs) you do that or how much you even have to pay. Like this lack of transparency regarding what your money is even going to is nothing new and it is even more unexcusable in times like these mm-hmm. i would agree i do want to jump in here just for a hot second and make sure i i said that this was a letter that was put together by lasso but i want to make sure to mention the two other organizations as well so it's the latinx artist society and opera which is lasso it was also co-signed by the black opera alliance and latino women in opera so mm-hmm. all three of these orgs came together which i think is is really great. There's, you know, there's strength in numbers. I really appreciate the solidarity. Um, George, any thoughts? Well, actually, I'll throw it back to you in a second. Here's what I don't get is the idea of charging 150 or it was reduced to $75 for that first round, only to then ding those people that make it into the next round an additional <laughs> $75. Congratulations. You made it to the next round. We need another $75. What's what's up with the nickel and diming? Here's the thing. You know, you, you go and if I go watch a hockey game... <laughs> Remembering the days when we could go watch hockey. Um, You go watch hockey and you buy a couple tickets, you buy a couple hot dogs, you buy a couple beers, you know, it starts to add up. I just hope that the folks that did go through this program at least are going to get a souvenir cup. (laughs) Oliver, would you design the souvenir cups for now? I just want to say that we're recording on Martin Luther King's birthday, Mm -hmm. uh, observed uh, the Monday the 18th. 
And there are, just by nature of who has written this open letter, there is a social justice implication in that the people who can afford to pay these application fees uh, typically are not the people of color, the people who are, you know, I'm not, that's a broad generalization, but that's just the truth about right what's happening in our business right now. So it is silencing the voices of people who might not have other opportunities and it's already expensive. And I'm just tired of, this is something I feel like we've been talking about this for months now of these organizations that are still behaving in predatory ways. And it's like, can't you guys like take, you know, read the room a little bit and see what, <laughs> what is, what is necessary here. And I, I mean, even when before the pandemic, I have to say that like, I remember being in the rat race of trying to become a professional singer and hearing about NIOP and how it was like just it was something on the calendar, the yearly audition calendar for people to like ask, aspire to, knowing that they were going to spend money and fly to New York and have to rent a hotel room and find a place to practice and all this whole it's ordeal about like how to do NIOP. And now that it's ostensibly easier for people to do NIOP from wherever they are living because of the pandemic, it still has these stupid obstacles. It's like, give me a break, you know? This was the time for you guys to like shine and show that we actually care about you. We really right. are interested in hearing you, not in nickeling and diming you. I would agree. You know, uh, there is one bit of phrasing in the letter that I will push back on, and I'll tell you why. Stay with me. Stay with me. Um, I'm not sure I totally agree with the phrasing. These practices are geared towards the preying on the underprivileged and keep the wealthy in our industry thriving. I, it's a great lead in. I think it's it's well written, but I honestly think there's a possibility that these choices might be even more considerate. These organizations haven't, in my opinion, probably haven't even bothered to think about the experience of the talent mm -hmm. that they're trying to mine. You know, most of the folks running these organizations, I know there are a couple singers at night, but it's not everybody. And I can bet lots of money, maybe a full audition fees worth, uh, that these guys have not lived <laughs> the hustle that is balancing those expenses while, you know, mm. trying to live. I don't think they have ever had to attempt to pay for rent and a voice lesson and an urgent care visit because, you know, you don't have health insurance all in the same week, only to be <laughs> rewarded with another bill for doing well in the competition. So, okay there might be some people that do. And those folks uh, that they, if they do in fact have experience on the other side of the table and they turn a blind eye, and in some cases, and I've seen this in social media, try to justify those expenses. Well, I believe there is a small place in an unpleasant environment for them. And may they eventually feel the amount of dignity commensurate with their behavior. Can you see how I'm trying not to do yeah. my typical like bad language? I'm trying to like edit, you know. You're so clean. So I'm clean trying. for a new I'm family year. friendly. New year, new Ashley. No, but I do totally agree. Like I think that for for companies like this and for Niab in particular, like it's easy money. There's always going to be a new crop of singers who's willing mm -hmm. to pay it because they think that it's what they have to do That's the culture. to get to yeah. the next step. So why would they bother to think about any other possible opportunities rather than just taking the easy money on the table? Like, and we're, we're clearly at an impasse. Like we've been talking about this for months, years. We, even. we have. I do feel though that there's, there is an additional layer of visibility uh, in letters like this and people being more open to talk about it the emergence of a site like middle class artist that seems to be consistently calling this stuff out where we were just doing it in the hallways of nola studios for 15 years uh right. so i do look forward to niop avoiding the pr nightmare that is staying silent on this issue i look forward to whatever their response is going to be we will be listening we will be watching we will be waiting
It's very well wrapped up. Listening, watching, waiting. You can read that article. It's on middleclassartist.com and, of course, on our website, operaboxscore.com. Will Liverman coming up next on the show, going inside the huddle with Oliver and Weston. Going to take a quick little sports break. Look, as we barrel towards the Super Bowl, it's not that hard. Get behind the Buffalo Bills, people. It's been a long, long time. Since We're all Bills a... Mafia now. I think we are. I think we probably are. Are you, Ashley? Listen, I'm all about the Bills, but next week I'm all about the Packers because any time I get a chance to see misfortune befall one Mr. Tom Brady and have him lose, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. My hatred for Tom Brady is, it's unjustified, first of all. He's never actually done anything to me, but it is it is deep. I, uh, no, I'm actually right on the same page with you. He's awful. A couple of years ago, when uh, when he was playing for his previous franchise and they were playing the Philadelphia Eagles, of which my friend Gabe is like a deep, deep fan, I watched the Super Bowl with him. And specifically because I wanted to celebrate Tom Brady's loss, I learned all of the lyrics to Fly, Eagles, Fly. And then we started a cheer called Sad Tom Brady, Sad Tom Brady, every time something good happened for the Eagles. So I'm... I, I'm a lovely lady with a lovely, kind-hearted personality, but that is one person that I can just rejoice in his failures. So. Well, if you're a Cowboys fan, we'd love to hear who you're going to be rooting for <laughs> as we barrel towards the Super Bowl. Operaboxscore@gmail.com. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Inside the huddle. That was the privilege of our own Tom Brady, Oliver Camacho. <laughs> Earlier today, I spoke to the baritone of the moment. I mean, he's got so much going on. Uh, he is in the cast of Highway 1 USA uh, of Opera Theater St. Louis. Uh, he's workshopping his own show called Factotum based on Barbara Seville, which we'll talk about. His own, uh, his second album recorded on the CD label is coming out in February. Um, he is going to be featured in the next issue of Opera News magazine, a spotlight on him. He was in the cast of Akhenaten, and we talked about Akhenaten for months and months, and he made his debut recently, before the pre-pandemic times, um, as Papageno at the Met, the first black Papageno. So he's got a lot going on, and COVID has not slowed him down. And we begin this conversation talking about a little bit of his origin story. You know, when I first started singing, you know, it was about just getting my name out there and just surviving and doing the auditions and competitions and like, um, but there came a time where it was just like, okay, you know, I've started to get my career going and it's, but it's more than that. Like, and of course, I mean, being an opera singer is something that's, you know, so meaningful for me to be able to, you know, use my gift and share my gift on the stage and, and work with people and to create something special and you know opera is you know amazing it's, it's it's what i love but beyond that it's you know i started thinking like what do i want to you know leave behind you know do i want to just be keep you know singing these roles and go from place to place which is you know amazing i get to see a lot of new cities but like i want to use my platform for something else too um and you know i got into opera because i saw some folks that were on stage that looked like me, like like Lawrence Brownlee and Denise Graves and like, you know, folks like this that have paved the way uh, so I can be on these stages, you know, they they really inspire me. So I wanted to also use my platform, um, you know, to encourage other young artists of color and be an advocate for diversity, inclusion 
in the arts and, you know, pull, you know, bring to light, you know, other black composers um, as much as I can and, 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 um, and sing and, and perform their works. And so that's just sort of like how over the years, how that developed and how the album came about. Um, I wanted to push this or make an album featuring all black composers. Cause I think a lot of times, you know, when we listen to black composers or their music, it's always, you know, and I love spirituals. Spirituals are like my favorite. Cause I grew up with a lot of gospel and to me, spirituals sort of like, is that perfect link between, you know, classical singing and gospel kind of all merge into one. <laughs> but I think a lot of, you know, times we put, you know, composers on platforms and, and recognizing their works uh, with spirituals. But, you know, there are a lot of great composers that wrote a lot of great art songs. Um, so I wanted to make a, an album specifically highlighting them, highlighting their contributions and art song. And it was a labor of love. It was something that I just reached out to Jim Ginsburg about like my program idea and pitched it to him. Um, and it was actually a connection through uh, an uh, album that I did with, or I just was like a, uh, an appearance with uh, Nicole Cabell and Allison Cambridge. They had a, a yeah, sisters, sisters and song. song. <laughs> yeah. And so I was, I, I came on to do the cozy trio and that's how I got linked up with CD records. Honorary and, sister. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Honorary sister. Um, and so that was, you know, my introduction to them. And so that's, uh, I pitched this project idea to, to Jim a few years ago, and, and Jim Ginsburg, uh, who is yeah. the CEO of Say D Record Label here in Chicago. So yeah, mm-hmm. and um, and he went for it, and then you know from there, we uh, you know just uh, uh, did the program, and we were able to record actually during COVID times safely in Indiana, and then here we are with your yeah. collaborator Sean with uh yeah so so Paul Sanchez uh is is uh is the pianist mm-hmm. and the the album actually features a a piece called Two Black Churches that I commissioned uh for Sean O'Pebolo um and going back you know he's the guy who I got you know myself Sean and Paul we worked together on Sean's first album of spiritual so that's how I you know got to be connected with them and I really loved his writing. I really loved how he took those spirituals and made them like really his own and the way he just brought them to life in a different way um, with his writing specifically in the piano parts. Um, so I really wanted to feature him in something that was meaningful to, to me and to, you know, just telling a black story about, you know, these girls, um, the Birmingham bombing, which is something that's so tragic, but then doing a parallel to the the Charleston shooting to you know sort of show how you know Black people in America are still after all this time having to to deal with you know the racism and um, you know being um, you know for me growing up in the South especially dealing with that myself and and being stereotyped, being uh, having people look at me different. Um, uh, and it's all, all those things, you know, was the inspiration behind Two Black Churches. And that was a focal point. We just sort of built a program around uh, that. But so that's... Are you also playing on one of these tracks? The last yeah, one? yeah. Um, that was another source of inspiration. I was watching this documentary uh, about the Birmingham bombing and they played this song at the end called Birmingham Sunday. And I was like, oh, I got to like, there's something about a song just really struck me. And I, I uh, was playing around with it and did sort of my own arrangement. And that I so for the last I think song in the in the album, um, I'm playing 
and singing for myself the song Birmingham Sunday, which kind of just wraps up the whole album and, you know, kind of touches on the, the bombing again, but also uh, more generally, you know, the, the, the song goes back to, and the choir kept singing of freedom. And <clears throat> to me, that's sort of a central, central uh, uh, point of the, the album. So I, um, I was happy to be able to, to have that be included as well. It's a special piece. Well, I'm a huge admirer of your sitting at the piano and singing. And it's actually very kind of aggravating to me that somebody is as talented as you. Um, but like you, you have some of these videos uh, that are available uh, on your social media, uh, some of which are very like authentic and mm -hmm. sincere and for lack of better words, soulful. I don't know if you prefer a different word, but I'm just gonna no, say, so yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about um, your training as a musician? I don't wanna talk too much about like your necessarily education, no, no, yeah. but, uh -huh. but like how you come mm -hmm. to sit at the piano and be able to sing like that and to be able to be mm -hmm. in front of a microphone in front of a camera, which mm -hmm. is something that we're all getting used to yeah, now, right, during right. COVID, but it seems like you were mm -hmm. comfortable with that like mm -hmm. six years ago, seven years ago, you're already doing stuff like that. Yeah, I don't know. It's um, for for me, like with my background, I grew up with a big gospel background, and in the Pentecostal church, basically means no sheet music, all mm -hmm. ear, all off the cuff, all like we don't know what. I mean, of course, you know, choir. We have choir practice, and all that. But like, there are songs that we sing, but there's a lot of improv in church, and lots of people will just get up and sing a song. And you just go with it. So I grew up in that sort of environment of just, you know, going with the flow. And I learned how to play <clears throat> gospel music at a young age and listening to it early on. So that sort of gave me the improv ability and, you know, messing around on the, the piano in that way. And I also did take, you know, music or classical piano as well. So kind of, you know, being able to read a little bit and also improv gave me that, uh, that skill set for that and um and yeah i always you know when i started out performing i didn't have a lot of work actually so i just spent my time you know it's like well one of the things you know i think about the greats and like how they leave behind their legacy and what do they have <laughs> they have recordings and people go to those you know youtube sites and listen to folks so it's just like okay well i should just do you know find some rep that I love and, and record it, you know, and just get it out there that kind of way. And, and, and sort of that way you sort of control when people type in your name and see what comes up, like the, the information and uh, the things that people see. So I spent a lot of time, you know, a few years ago, investing money in, in like project recordings. And um, I did this competition where I was, I did like a Deutsch gramophone test recording. So I was, have some of that all online and that's all, that's all kind of how that got started. And I always make it um, a goal of mine every year to like keep just periodically putting out, you know, new, new videos, new art song things, and just like continuing to get it out there. Cause it's so important these days, especially with COVID times. Yeah. I mean, um, you're uniquely yeah. prepared to yeah. <laughs> be a working musician uh, in this yeah, time. Yeah. If you had already experience with recording equipment and having yeah, the camera yeah. trained on you and it's an, it's an entirely mm -hmm. different topic. And I, I mean, I would love yes. to talk about that with you because mm -hmm. you are so good at social media, mm -hmm. maybe we'll get back to it, but mm -hmm. um, no, I think that what you did before was always really engaging. I think there's a video of you uh, crack open your score before the first day of rehearsal. <laughs> oh God. Maybe we'll link to it or maybe we'll cut it. Actually, there's no rights on that. That's like, we can get your permission right here. We, we have permission to share that. 
I mean, it's like a parody of another actual rap song, but oh, okay. there's, there's maybe no... we'll get flagged. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but think, that yeah. that is that video particularly cracks me up because <laughs> it's the way we you hear people talking to each other sometimes mm-hmm. like in the lounges of conservatories, <laughs> you know, but it's not exactly. something that usually yeah. here available to a wider audience. I don't know what is what has been some of the reaction you've been gotten from, you know, your the organizations you work for and your colleagues about some of that stuff. Oh, I think for a lot of people, it's unexpected. Mm-hmm. I had started, you know, these funny, like silly videos just started out. I don't know, you're just bored and you just take a song and and make it relatable and talk about things that people can relate to. And that's just sort of how it came up and you know how we're always talking like gosh this person was so prepared they didn't know their music like <laughs> how long have they had this you know like and so I just kind of took all that information and just made this sort of song that people can everyone always has that person in the cast and I think you know people are always you know organizations are you know surprised hopefully <laughs> uh, in a positive way you know when I when they see this type of material and it's just it also shows like the the fun the fun side too, you know, and then not to take things, um, you know, kind of just be light, you know, too. I kind of kind of make that a, an important part of, of who I am, along with like all of the very, you know, serious subject matter that's on my page. But also like, you know, I love the office. I love to laugh. I love, mm-hmm. you know, to, you know, to just be genuine and joyful. So that's those that's always the inspiration behind those types of things yeah i know one day i might be my own i'm always worried that i'm going to be the victim of my own song one day (laughs) when i have a gig and i just have like no time to prepare and i'm going to show up and then that song is just going to come back and bite me (laughs) we know a very famous artist who show up to (laughs) rehearsal and they have to have the music staff teach them their role you know yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) hello it's it's a real thing I'm going to rewind a little bit and talk about Factotum. And this is a project that you're doing with Lyric Opera Chicago and elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Other places besides Lyric? I mean, I would hope so one day. Okay. So um, it's being produced Lyric. At, yeah. at Lyric Unlimited. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Larry Brownlee. And I have to say that one of the best things that I've ever seen done as a sort of outreach mm-hmm. initiative was or is the Larry Brownlee and Friends concert series. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the one I saw, I've talked about on the show many times. Um, it was in the lobby of the Civic Opera House with Solomon Howard and Whitney Morris and Christopher Kenny. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was everything. I mean, it was yeah. arias. It was a little bit of show tunes. It was gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Stevie Wonder. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, it was just joyful, but also mm-hmm. very moving and exciting. Mm-hmm. And it was very unpretentious. Mm-hmm. And at some point in that show, Larry <clears throat> said to the people in the audience, which are mostly black people, I have to yeah, say, yeah. which was mm. great, you know. Yeah, yeah. Go, go into the th- into the auditorium, peek your head in there, and look inside. That's where we normally perform. And I would mm. love if you came and supported us doing mm-hmm. that as well, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was just mm-hmm. so explicit and honest and authentic. Mm-hmm. Like we need you to show up, you know. Like yeah. We're, as organizations, we're trying to figure out how to bring in new audiences. And this is right. what I'm trying, you know? Mm-hmm. So can you talk about Factotum in that context? Yeah. The Factotum, I mean, that's, well, I, the, I, when I first had the idea of it, I was, when I was starting to work more, I was doing a lot of Barbara Seville's 
And every time when I go travel to a new place, I always got to find the black barbershop. Hello, Mm -hmm. because like, that's just what you have to do. And when I would sit there, I would just observe a lot and think like, man, this would be kind of a really cool to to take Barber of Seville and update it and put it in a black barbershop because, you know, it made me think about my own experience, you know, on black barbershops and how it's more than just a haircut. It's like an experience and a big part of black culture. Um, so to answer your question, the fact totem, um, I mean, that was like the idea of it, but the, the whole, the story of it and why this opera is here is just to help also in that same vein, bring more diverse audiences uh, to the opera house by telling, you know, stories that they can relate to and understand and also an uplifting and, and fun story too. I mean, there's lots and lots of great new works that I've seen and been a part of um, out there, but I think you know, we have a lot of serious shows that are just like so, you know, heavy and like, ugh. and I'm like, man, we need to laugh sometime and, you know, have some sort of, you know, something that's that shows black people in an uplifting light. And, I, you know, I thought what better place than the barbershop and and taking these different styles of music. That what, we, can you be explicit? What styles of music are you sampling? We're using uh, we're, we're using. So each character sort of has their style that they uh use it as sort of um is their theme so uh you know there's hip-hop trap there's neil hip-hop soul. trap can you explain i'm sorry i don't know hip-hop what that is. and trap trap is sort of sim- like in that world of hip-hop so like hip-hop okay. um okay. rap and uh neil soul and, and r&b funk and gospel and there's a barbershop quartet who kind of serve as the greek chorus that help move the plot along and uh, comment on the story and so there's sort of like that connective tissue within all that. Um, and, you know, this is sort of like when I, I love that you talk about the Larry Brownlee and Prince concert because, you know, classical singers are some of the best trained singers. And in addition to that, I think, you know, there are a few folks who also can delve and dip into different genres while still keeping their, you know, technique or whatever, but like being able to like not everybody yeah not everyone not everyone that's for sure <laughs> but you know the folks that can do it is remarkable to be able to um to witness that so like the factotum is just sort of taking all these genres and implementing the classical voice uh <clears throat> as a way to to sort of connect the dots for folks that you know maybe maybe wouldn't go to the opera but you know would look at a story like factotum and see the relatability to that and then you know go watch it you know so that's where the inspiration you're saying that the other musicians are using their own voices and they're mic'd per se and they're you you have like what are you sampling tracks is there a band like uh, how is it what does the end project look like you know the end project looks i mean we hope for a full production and those are a lot of things we're talking about now because you know we just did a workshop of it we learned a lot it was a lot of fun and you know that's the joy and beauty of of these genre blends is to you know figure out like what's the best way to make everyone successful and to show this music in the best light um with it being classically sung um so there's there's just it just blends all these things together um and you know we're we're at that point now based on what we learned from the workshop of like you know do we need mike do we need like what do we need band wise and like sort of taking it and elevating it to that next spot to um 
um, hopefully have another workshop with when it's safe with COVID to have, you know, the instruments and seeing really what we have um, with that. So, um, so it's just been fun to. But your to plan is to that. market it to opera audiences and not maybe try to establish it as like a theater piece or as a, as a music theater piece and then just sneak, yeah. sneak the opera in there, you know? Yeah, that's right, right. Exactly. I mean, the thing about the factotum, I just wanted to, I wanted it to be the type of show that can live in maybe in different worlds. Like I could see it on a musical theater stage or a theater stage. Um, I think it has those, it has that sort of, um, I don't know. I think it's, it just break. There's a lot of things in it um, that where it could live on those different stages. But of course, the main focus of course is being, you know, being an opera advocate as well, having this show um, live in opera houses and having, you know, more diverse audiences uh, come in and, and, you know, and, and experience uh, classical music in a different way, you know? <clears throat> so when I begin to think about all of these pieces of your brand, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. um, your kind of identity politics mm -hmm. and your social media presence and even the very specific work that you do as a composer and as a musician, it all begins to feel like you are like, you wanna be like this advocate teacher in the opera mm. community. Mm -hmm. um, can you think back about your own training? Did you have any experience? And then we talked briefly about the governor's school mm -hmm. where you like, where you felt that, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, that passion for being, for teaching, even if you're not like specifically yeah. going to be a teacher per se, but. Yeah, the idea of like that kind of sharing and uh, feeling mm -hmm. the passion about uh, advocating mm -hmm. for what we do as musicians. Yeah, I think it. I mean, it probably hit me. It's probably in my DNA a little bit because my dad was a teacher. He was a elementary school teacher, and a lot of that I think rubbed off on me. I don't think I knew I had it really at the beginning uh, when I was focusing mainly on performing, um, but especially now during this pandemic, um, you know, we're all sitting around. I've had a you know a lot of time to really uh, work with <clears throat> the governor's school for the arts is where I, you know, went to high school and, and worked and did some master classes. With Ryan Speedo Green and Frederick Ballantyne. <laughs> yeah, we all were there at the same time. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, this little school in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, and it really just sort of dawned on me that, you know, even before then, you know, as I was going throughout my career, realizing the importance of being an advocate and using your platform to help, you know, continuing all together to, to forge a path forward um, in terms of, you know, inclusion and diversity, not just on the stage, but, you know, in administration as well. And really making the, you know, we're making these statements, but what are we doing actually to, to make that change that we, that we uh, wanna see in this field? Um, because there's lots of potential. There's so many great minds and great talent out there we have we have everything is just like what are we doing to to make this go forward and that's like a big part of my mission is encouraging and, and helping people as I you know as best as I can um, who are behind me and you know telling them about my story and um, you know encouraging them to to uh, you know speak up and use their voice and be comfortable in their skin um, because it's you know it's what I was trained, you know, by my, my uh, high school teacher, Robert Brown, instilled that in me. Um, and he um, was, you know, he was like a musical father to all of us. He, he passed away, sadly, in 2008, I think. 
Um, but you know, he, you know, Ryan Speedo Green, Freddie will tell you, I mean, it's in his book actually in Ryan's book that, you know, Mr. Robert Brown was, you know, a, a major influence. Um, because he, you know, is a six foot four black man. He 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 we we loved about him. I mean, he was like super funny, but also would come down with like the hammer of justice if you didn't have that music learned. Like yeah. that's where we learned that, like that discipline. Yeah, and to crack see open your score before the first day of rehearsal. <laughs> look, you can mess around and not have that music learned if you want. You're going to be put on full blast. Like Brown didn't care who it was. Um, Were you at that performance of Carmen that uh, Ryan talks about where he met Denise Graves backstage? I think that may have been a year before me, or okay. it could have been maybe my freshman year. But like I, you know, we would always take trips to Governor's School or to the mm -hmm. Met. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's. For me as well, that's where uh, that's where I really had a thought like, man, this is a really cool art form. I mean, I was just amazed at how I mean, we were sitting in the nosebleeds and we could hear those singers without microphones just as clear as day up there. I'm like, how are they doing this? How are they making this sound? I mean, it's just something so unnatural and so different and so otherworldly that was like, it's cool. But at that time, <laughs> whatever, this was in the, in the early aughts or in the uh, Gosh, in the late yeah. 90s maybe yeah yeah did you also as a high school student um understand that you were a minority in the audience not just on stage you know it's weird I had, I had kind of a reverse thing happen because governor school was super diverse mm -hmm. and there were a lot of black singers opera singers in that program because we're all from the area and governor school is a huge advocate for, I mean, it was just one of the most diverse schools um, in dance. I mean, we have the, you know, um, Adrian Warren, who's Tina and Tina Turner went to governor school um, and lots of folks that, that, um, so I was just like growing up, I, I was always surrounded by um, people just of color. Super, yeah. People yeah. of color. That Same were super experience talented. until I went to college. <laughs> until I went to college, exactly. So like, it started off like, whoa, this is what it's like. And then it was like, oh, wait, <laughs> it's not really like, so it was, I had like the reverse experience of really getting that at an early age and thinking this is the norm. But then going out there, the further you go up, you realize like, oh, it's kind of not as diverse it's as I thought. getting wider and wider the yeah. higher I go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Started off like all your family and friends and parents mm -hmm. are all at the concerts yeah. and it's like, super fun and like yeah. you know people are really into it and then like over time it was like okay <laughs> yeah, it's just it uh it was interesting to to think about that um and well, which so, is why yeah. i think it's it's so refreshing for at least us in the community yeah to see that you have maintained yourself and mm. uh, especially the stuff you do in social media is like so you and mm. it doesn't feel like you're trying to please Mm. You know, any mm -hmm. particular mm -hmm. agency or mm. organization. Mm -hmm. But um, we're running out of time and I wanted to give you a chance mm -hmm. to do two things. One, to introduce uh, a piece on your new album, Dreams of a New Day, which comes out February 12th. Mm -hmm. um, I assume it'll be on streaming platforms, but yeah, you can also mm -hmm. spend the money and buy the CD, folks. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Old school now. CDs um, are like so maybe expensive. one of the Burley pieces, since uh, that will probably be public domain for us, or something else if you want. Yeah, yeah. Just introduce it. Yeah, or talk about it, like why you chose oh. it. What oh, what oh, maybe oh, is oh, your? Oh, yeah, you know? yeah. Well, Bur I mean, Burley is like you can't have. I mean, for me at least, I couldn't have an album of black composers without mentioning him. I mean, he's one of the most prolific 
or I mean, he's like one of the the OGs, mm-hmm. <laughs> as, he, as it were, you know, like, and a lot of people don't know um, that he he's just a, a, such a great writer. I mean, like he's known, I mean, what he did with spirituals and making and writing him in the way which gave a platform for black soloists to be able to perform uh, spirituals classically, which is amazing. Um, and we should celebrate that, but he also wrote art a lot songs. of great, yeah. yeah, he wrote art songs. And a lot of people don't know the five songs of Lawrence Hope. Actually, it was introduced to me. I didn't read it. I didn't learn about this in college. Like I, it was introduced to me when I was at Lyric and I sang it for WFMT like years and years ago. Um, but it's, you know, it's one of my favorite art song cycles. And it was something that I just had to have on the program. So, yeah. Call me not to the lotus lake that drooping fishes Thanks again to Will Lieberman. That was from his recording, Dreams of a New Day, which is out February 20, February 12th on the CD label. That was from Henry Burley's Five Songs of Lawrence Hope, the fourth song, Among the Fuchsias. Will Lieberman with pianist Paul Sanchez. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Both Ricardo Muti and the International Conference of Symphony and Opera Musicians has released a statement in support of the musicians of the Met Orchestra. Muti appealed to the company to, quote, give back to the musicians of the Met the dignity which we all deserve and the hope that they can soon return to share with us their art. ICSOM directed their statement more towards CEO Peter Gelb, quote, what he is attempting, using the pandemic as surreptitious cover to cut wages, erode working conditions, and eviscerate union contracts is reprehensible. A new COVID study in Germany looks into the risk of infection for visitors to concert halls, theaters, and opera houses. Scientists at the Fraunhofer Heinrich Institute concluded that as long as there is complete air exchange with outside air at least every 20 minutes, a super spreader event is theoretically impossible, though mask wearing and distancing in corridors is still necessary to keep audiences safe. Soprano Karen Slack pays tribute to black women in a new film entitled Hashtag Say Their Names. The film explores the lives of Sojourner Truth, Ida B. Wells, Fannie Lou Hammer, and contemporary activist and scholar Kimberly Crenshaw. Over the course of the project, Slack 
quote, found that most of the social justice movements were started by women and black women in particular. Say Their Names is available for free on YouTube. France cares about the arts, and it turns out that it cares about its artists, too. The country guarantees employment benefits for about 250,000 beneficiaries who work in the arts. Quote, we thank all of those who have created an, and innovated during these difficult times, says French president Emmanuel Macron. Culture is absolutely essential to our lives as citizens. It's nice to feel appreciated. Baritone Stephen Labrie is a freelancer in New York. His friend and fellow baritone Jared Ott has a full-time job singing in Germany. Both are about the same age and have similar training. One has been based in the U.S. during the pandemic, the other in Europe. As the coronavirus spread, that made all the difference. You can read about the tale of two barahunks by Zachary Wolf at the New York Times. Hunken tenor Jonas Kaufmann has concerns for the mental health of performing artists amid the pandemic. During a concert in Madrid, Kaufmann said, quote, it's not easy to bring this up in public, but I know a number of suicides in our family of musicians where they see no future. The German tenor mentioned the lack of perspective, help and support for certain vulnerable souls who see no way out. He took the opportunity to appeal to authorities, urging them to reopen places of culture and to be inventive to keep art alive. If you or someone you know is experiencing feelings of hopelessness, distress, or suicidal thoughts in the U.S., you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. British conductor Sir Simon Rattle will leave his post leading the London Symphony Orchestra in 2023 to take over as chief conductor for the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra. Rattle has long been a vocal critic of Brexit, but maintained that his departure is for personal reasons, as it will enable him to, quote, better manage the balance of my work and be close enough to home to be present for my children in a meaningful way. All right, let's kick off that new micro segment in the two minute drill, yellow card, red card. This week's yellow cards. Monaco. Opera de Monte Carlo has moved their start times earlier in the day to 2 p.m. for January's Thais to comply with the country's COVID curfew. Bulgaria. Juan Diego Flores did perform a concert on January 14th with the Sofia Philharmonic. It happened. Ashley saw it on Facebook. Florida. As of this recording, Opera Orlando is still going forward with Hansel and Gretel at the end of January. In this week's red cards, Austria. Federal authorities have closed all cultural venues until at least February 28th. Germany, Deutsches Nationaltheater, Staatskapelle Weimar, Oper Frankfurt, and Staatsoper Stuttgart are closed until at least April. Bayerische Staatsoper is currently closed through February. Dresden has canceled the remainder of its 2021 season with an alternative schedule beginning in April. England, Royal Opera House Covent Garden has canceled March performances of Tosca. Spain, Bilbao Opera has canceled the whole February run of L'Elysir d'Amore. Javier Camarena's second Barcelona concert set for January 21st has also been canceled. Switzerland, Zurich, Grand Theater de Genève, and Theater Basel are all closed through February. Italy, the Italian government has declared a state of emergency through April 30th. And France, Paris has canceled Capriccio and the whole run of Die Zauberflotte. The soonest they'll return is mid-February. Exit stage right, conductor Andrew Greenwood has succumbed to cancer. He joined the music staff of Covent Garden in 1977 and went on to be the chorus master at Welsh National Opera through the 1980s. 
Lucky then embarked on an international career including tenures with Opera Cologne, Royal Danish Opera, and the International Istanbul Music Festival. Australian opera director Elijah Moshinsky has died at 75. Also a very successful theater and television director, Moshinsky made his operatic debut in 1975 at Covent Garden and went on to stage productions at ENO, Welsh National Opera, Scottish Opera, Opera Australia, La Scala, the Wiener Staatsoper, and the Met. The beloved Santa Fe Opera prop director Randy Lutz died last week at 62. The company's properties director since 1993, Lutz received a national award from the United States Institute for Theater Technology for his professional mentoring. And on this day, January 18th in 1656, it was the first performance of Cavalli's Statira Principessa di Persia in Venice. In 1685, Lully's opera Roland premiered at Versailles. In 1823, it was the first performance of Mercadante's Didone Abbandonata in Turin. In 1835, it was the birth of one of the Mighty Five, the Russian composer Cesar Cui. In 1844, the first performance of that hit Caterina Cornaro by Donizetti in Naples, your favorite, Ashley. In 1841, the birth of the French composer Emmanuel Chabrier. In 1871, it was the first performance of Giovanni Bottesini's opera Alibaba in London. In 1873, it was the birth of the Wagnerian tenor Alfred von Bari in Malta, one for Weston, ooh, another one for Weston in 1930, the first performance of The Nose by Shostakovich in Leningrad. And in 1956, it was the birth of the German tenor Christoph Pregardin. And that's your two-minute drill. And uh, Weston, for a change, it's usually Oliver doing yeah. the, uh, the radio announcer. But tell us what we were listening to. If we, we were, were listening in fact to just, listening to anything. If we uh, were. <laughs> it was just a little bit of the gallop from uh, the nose. Just a that opera is just full of just amazing interludes with little uh, fun little uh, uh, percussion sections. Very avant garde, but fun. You know, it's like Wozzeck if you're just having a good date, good time with it. It's 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 very very. Wozzeck if you just lost your nose. If you just lost your nose, a very specific Voltec, scenario. Yeah. Uh, and it was the. It was the uh, Met production uh, we heard from a, uh, from a few years back, uh, which is my very good transition because uh, that's the only praise we can give to the Met today, <laughs> given all of the things happening over there. The Met has just been doing some doing some things and all of these letters that people are just writing opining all about how the Mets doing a terrible job and Peter Gelb specifically is just it it really does make me feel a little bit better that we are not the only ones who are saying hey Met management maybe chill out a little bit but on the other hand is the only thing that Ricardo Muti can do to help this situation <laughs> to write yet another heartfelt letter he has like, written so many over the past year but he's it was, so bored 
It was delicate and heartfelt. ICSOMs, however, a little less heartfelt. Yes. That a little nastier. Was... A little more specific. More I... uh, a- Ashley going after Tom Brady energy in that <laughs> was, one, I think. It was a, a little more, let, let's say I, I resonated more with the ICSOM <laughs> one. So much so that my own camera is going into soft focus with my rage. So, uh, yeah. Man, Matt Cummings taking everybody to task. Matt, you going to take this uh, study coming out of Germany to task? It's not that the study is bad in and of itself. It's just that I don't think that the, the article writing up the study really takes into account how specific these findings might be. Mm. Because whether or not this is the from the Konzerthaus Dortmund and, yeah. and German institutes that are looking at one specific concert house and determine that that concert house had good enough ventilation that you could have people there without significant risk of a COVID outbreak. And that is really great for that one concert house, but that is not necessarily going to be, for lack of a better word, um, transmissible to other theaters. I think I, I just got the shivers. Uh, it's like watching it's like watching movies of people in crowds you're like i can't do it anymore it's it's absolutely true oh god that's so real oliver are you shivering over there i'm shivering thinking about stephen labrie and um jared ott who are two gorgeous men who zachary (laughs) wolf uh knows his audience (laughs) by the audience of oliver specifically (laughs) well i i think zachary wolf is a little fruity I, i i think it's pretty safe to assume that so uh, he knows his readers, and this was a really great piece. And actually, I'm so glad that it appeared in a platform as big as the New York Times so people could really read about the financial situations of artists. And we know middle-class artists have been doing this work forever now. But to see it in a place like New York Times where more people will learn about it and to see what the difference is between being an American artist who lo- loses all their jobs and being an artist who is hired by German houses uh, who have a social safety net, much like the one that's being provided for artists in France. Mm. Ashley, these uh, social safety nets, and how does that intersect with our, our red cards and our yellow cards? You know, the nutshell was that we kept seeing so many line items to report on that where this house is open, this house is closed, this country's totally on lockdown, this one seems to be apparently fine and in a different part of the planet. Uh, so we just Or they're Florida. To- or well, Florida. <laughs> that's the other thing that I think is hilarious. Number one, I think it's going to be interesting to watch this space and see how these countries move and shift out of the red and the yellow categories. I also think it's real funny that right now the majority of red cards is basically all of the opera going world. And the three yellows right now are Bulgaria, Monaco, and Florida. So watch this space. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I really do wish them the best down in Florida, but I would encourage friends. all of our Floridian listeners to n- probably not go to those performances. Just just don't do it. It's a bad idea. Well, and of course, in soccer, the yellow cards, you know, you get one, it's a warning, you get a second yellow card that then turns into a red, and then your team is down to 10 men. So we'll see if some of these opera houses are, are going to pile Or in Weston's case, you get a scarf. Yeah. I get a scarf. I I, I, scarf. I looked through my entire like uh, wardrobe in here, and I couldn't find anything that was red. 
or yellow. We need I'm an just... opera box score props master. <laughs> <laughs> uh, even I though I can it. now see myself with beautiful, please. beautiful lighting. I've been just so distracted by my own face this entire Thank time because you, I, have a, I have a ring light now. So we needed, we that's the kind of production we... value you can get from OBS. <laughs> we needed Randy Lutz in his in his prime. Props yeah. are, I'll just say, having done plenty of storefront opera and storefront theater, it is such a short straw to be a props master because mm. you are so mistreated by directors, designers, and it's utterly infuriating. You have to have the patience of Job in order to be a props master. And when you're good at what you do, you should be honored just as Randy Lutz was by an organization like USITT for the work that you have done. You know uh, who's out of patience, George, is Sir Simon Rattle. <laughs> he, he's he, done and he gone. He's when gone. he was going to go from, he he was the music director at Berlin. Uh, mm-hmm. He did sign a contract to be the music director at London Symphony Orchestra. That was in 2015, uh, a lifetime ago where there was no Brexit oh, and God. the LSO was supposed to be getting a brand new concert hall to replace yeah. the Barbican, which he had previously described as serviceable with George, <laughs> you, you speak British. That is a killer burn. Like I'm, I'm surprised they didn't just like raise the theater right sick. that minute. <laughs> it, I mean, I just think that, you know, Brexit kicks in and rattle is like, well, if Brexit's happening, there's going to be a retexit happening. <laughs> <I'm> oh. <laughs> that was my good joke I had written in my notes, and I was waiting for those groans. I, awesome. I feed on Terrible. them. Awesome. So. Terrible. Uh, director Elijah Vyshinsky passing away at, at 75. I've seen some of his productions on film of, of his standard repertoire, and they're, they are so moving. They're so well-directed and, and so well-designed. Um, he is... The, he was the mentor to one of my mentors as a director, and I'm just so crushed that he is not around to be working anymore. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us wherever you are and however you're listening for Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. Oliver Camacho, what do you got? I know we're sour on the Met, but this Saturday, the Metropolitan Broadcast, the noon broadcast, is going to be the debut of Lantine Price and Franco Corelli in that iconic broadcast of Il Trovatore. It's It's fire. It's on fire, so you've got to listen. I'm sorry if we hate the Met, but you can't hate the Met for this moment. Matt Cummings. Can't hate Leontine Price. You also can't hate Lawrence Brownlee, where you can and you can get a double feature of Lawrence Brownlee this weekend. On Friday the twenty second, Houston Grand is gonna broadcast Larry Brownlee and Friends, and then on the twenty third, uh, Rome Opera Rome has Ipuritani with him and Jessica Pratt, a concert version. So those are things I'm gonna be checking out. Weston Williams, I got your good call. You're well lit for the first time. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Dallas Opera Network. Ashley Hardgrave. Uh, I'm on Pardon Watch 2021. Uh, as of this taping, there are 40 hours left in the current administration. Um, but by the time this drops, we will know the extent of the most recent batch of presidential pardons. We're taping on one days. We don't know yet. But in the meantime, I will just say congratulations to Little Wayne. <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com, N-O-R-M. 
www.double-o-d-e-l.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Write to us at our website, operaboxscore.com. Podcast version of our show available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Will Lieberman, and your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as power is peacefully transferred. We're back with an all-shoe... No, we are back with an all-new show next week when we go inside the huddle with David T. Little and Jonathan McCulloch of Opera Philadelphia's production of Soldier Songs. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more acronyms. Join us. <laughs>